Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Darbor here, and you're listening to Med Conversations, sitting with uh, Beck and Darbor in a in a very cozy little room. The storm is raging outside. It's been raining all day, and we're going to talk about asthma. We are, and speaking of storms and rain, I've decided to include a little bit of historical context to this. So just to set the scene, we're taking you back to the 20th of November in 2016. So 39 degrees in Melbourne, unseasonably warm, and on the news that night, weather reports warned a top of 19 degrees the next day. We're talking in Celsius for our many international listeners. Um, (laughs) So they warned that it was only going to be 19 and it was going to be a chilly morning and a big storm. So that meant that Melburnians got to combine two of their favourite things, conversations about the weather and announcements of scientific conspiracies. So the, the city was full of people standing in lifts, whining excitedly about how cold it was. Statisticians the world over frantically tallied how many people got to um, get the opportunity to rip out that hilarious original line of, brr, so much for global warming, ha ha ha. I feel like statisticians should be doing more important work, but... Carry on back, what happened next? <laughs> so the pollen that it had already caused hay fever sufferers some grief the day before when it was hot and really that whole rest of that month. It was terrible, yeah, I remember. And that pollen was being pummeled by the stormy air into tiny little pieces small enough to breathe in and the weather conditions kept the allergens close to ground level. People started to cough, they started to wheeze and they started to call triple zero. Which in Australia is our emergency number. And some records were set, I believe. Some records were set. And I, actually, when I was um, researching for this episode, I saw that the previous biggest surge for the number of calls to emergency service had been in 2010 after the AFL grand final draw. So I imagine it was the uh, the fine young citizens beating each other up. and I think it was the old people having heart attacks. Some of the and consumers, maybe. Wide, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thunderstorm asthma literally doubled the old record and we ran out of paramedics and ambulances. So people were coming in with fire trucks and... Yeah, someone in a wheelbarrow. (laughs) No, but there were 10,000 asthma presentations in Melbourne and Geelong in that one night and emergency departments absolutely filled up. So what they were doing is the nurses were lining patients up in chairs down the hallways and basically walking down the rows of coughing patients, administering inhalers as if it was some kind of a, a factory line. I just would have put salbutamol through the, the hospital vents. Through up the to air me. vents. There's, there's something unsettling about that. I can't <laughs> put my finger on it. All right, so this episode, we're talking about asthma, and we're talking about asthma in adults, which I think is an important thing to, um, to specify here. So we'll go through the definition, pathophysiology, a bit of epidemiology, and, and how to make the diagnosis in terms of clinical features and investigations, some differentials, evaluation, management, and some... Um, prognostic features. Okay, so Davor, if you want to start us off, what is asthma? So according to the National Asthma Council Australia, it's when you have symptoms plus variable airflow limitations. So those symptoms, Beck, there's a classic triad. Yeah, so not everyone has all of these things, but dyspnea or shortness of breath, cough and wheeze. Yeah, it's an important thing to think of when someone's just got a chronic cough that they can't get rid of, particularly if it happens a lot at night. And the variable airflow limitation is interesting as well because as a medical student, I always learnt reversible, but it, re- variability is enough. If someone has a you know significantly uh, constricted airway after a day at work um, compared to uh, early in the morning, that's enough for a diagnosis of asthma. 
Mm. And um, the, the condition is characterized by three different things. So the first one is chronic inflammation. So this inflammation might go away in between episodes to some extent, but not always completely. The second one is airway hyperresponsiveness. And the third, intermittent airway narrowing. And this is interesting because it's not just because of bronchoconstriction. Do you know what else there is? So edema of the bronchial uh, mucosa is part of it. And like people get a lot of mucus as well, some kind of combination of all of these different pathophysiological factors. Yeah, and, and uh, well, like you said, we always learned in med school that it was just always reversible. But actually, um, as, the, as the disease progresses, it can sometimes become irreversible, even if it started off being reversible. So there's a degree of airway remodeling that can occur. But if you're med students, just remember that it's reversible. I had a colourful country respiratory physician describe it as a lead pipe asthma, when there's just no change in that airway. Mm. And that's just something that happens after time, particularly if they smoke. Yeah, okay, so that's the definition. And we've already sort of alluded a little bit to the pathophysiology. But just to go a little bit more into that. So inflammation, we said. And um, the airway mucosa, basically there's activated eosinophils, T lymphocytes and mast cells. And they're all proliferating in there, contributing to this inflammation. And in some patients, I didn't know this before, but I was reading the other day that some patients have neutrophils proliferating instead of eosinophils. And those patients won't respond well to inhaled corticosteroids. Oh, interesting. So this is like the cutting edge of pathophysiological theory, right? So we're, we're trying to figure out which, which side people are on and what they're going to respond to. Yeah, yeah. And so, so corticosteroids increase neutrophils. Mm, interesting. And it's not going to help there. But again, if you're a med student, this is very unimportant. Mm. Um, now that we said inflammation, the other thing, bronchial hyperresponsiveness, a defining feature of that is just smooth muscle contraction. So that just means that bronchioles are squeezing down. Um, do you know much about this remodeling we were talking about? Well, ju- I just wanted to say again that it can be irreversibly narrowed. If you go through this dance of pathophysiology enough times, it eventually doesn't go back to the way it was. Mm. All right. So we will talk a little bit in about 20 minutes about some of the, the cutting edge um, treatments that are available to us. And to understand those, we should understand this first, the immunology of allergy. There are a bunch so I just of... want to flag this is not med student level, but yeah. But so it, it, if you if you everything we've said so far has been boring, you might find something interesting here. And we're not going to go much into it, but if you're if you're interested, um, basically T lymphocytes can help to activate B lymphocytes, and they do this with the assistance of interleukins. The interleukins here are four, thirteen, and ten. And there's a drug that acts on those, which stops the T lymphocytes helping to activate B lymphocytes. Lebrikizumab. Lebrikizumab, that's it. And then the next step is that the B lymphocytes can release mast cells. And they do this with IgE involved in that process. We're oversimplifying a lot here. Now, IgE is also a target of a drug called omalizumab. Then, somewhere in this whole... Um, chain of events that happens on a cellular level is interleukin 5 um, and that is implicated in the release of eosinophils so this one is mepolizumab but like I said we'll come back to that 
And so those eosinophils, they're the ones that are more responsible for the chronic inflammation that's an important part of the long-term issues with asthma, right? Mm, right. And, and I should say, I'm actually just looking at a complicated diagram here. It's very hard to just explain <laughs> it in words. So I suggest that if you are interested or if you're um, studying for a, a big exam, then have a look at these pictures and don't trust us entirely. <laughs> All right. So that's definition pathophysiology. Let's talk about the epidemiology. As I said, we're only talking about adult asthma here, but the peak onset, as you would all know, is in childhood. So three-year-olds, I think, is the, the real peak there, but you can get it at any time. So asthma is part of the atopic march that people like to talk about. So that's, if you think about anecdotally what people were getting at different parts of your life. So the first thing, you know, people would have got, got um, in preschool and in kindergarten is a lot of eczema, and then people tend to develop asthma. And then as people get older, and even in their 20s, if I look around at my friends, a lot of people have hay fever. So that's the atopic march, just going from one disease to another. Mm. And for med students, I think atopy is a really important thing here. So A-T-O-P-Y, that describes that bunch of things. So hay fever, eczema, or um, dermatitis, and asthma. All right, so that's onset. Um, In terms of gender, in adults, there's not really a predominance of either sex, but in children... Uh, males are more likely to get it than females and the natural history is I found this really interesting um, so the severity that you that you get when you're young is what you get stuck with so if you got really severe asthma as a kid you'll probably have severe asthma as an adult you're not likely to go from having mild asthma as a little kid to having severe asthma when you get older interesting if anything it goes the other way so most kids with asthma find that it goes away in adolescence but it can come back later in life and a couple of other risk factors apart from ATP are genetic predisposition, obesity, and some of the more controversial things are infections that are decided that everything is due to infections these days, I think. Diet, pollution. Now, we know that these things are triggers, but the controversial thing is whether they're also causes or predisposing factors. I think the hygiene hypothesis is behind some thinking for asthma as well. Why is asthma more and more common in Western countries compared with uh, more developing countries and it's because we're too clean we too don't expose clean. ourselves to enough pathogens yeah so roll in the mud eat the sand pit dirt so there was a study last year published in Nedjam which kind of tackled this question it compared uh, children in Hutterite farms and Amish farms Amish farms as we know are very traditional lots of exposure to animals not much machinery whereas Hutterite children Although they have a very similar genetic background, uh, those families farm in much more kind of modern ways using lots of machinery. And Amish children, I think, have a significantly lower rate of asthma, four times less than Hutterite children. And they discovered in the homes of Amish uh, families, the dust has a lot more endotoxins to it. So really lends support to that hygiene hypothesis. So if you're a Mm. child that's exposed to lots of different types of bacteria, lots of uh, a more variable microbiome, all that kind of stuff, your risk of a, an allergic atopic response and asthma is uh, significantly reduced. Mm. No, it's really interesting. And I suppose that another couple of things that we should talk about as well as those risk factors are the comorbidities that might go with asthma. So some of the things we might touch on again a bit later on are nasal polyps, Gourd, so gourd can often cause something like asthma as well. Hay fever, we've mentioned. Upper airway dysfunction, which used to be called vocal cord dysfunction, is really important as a differential diagnosis as well. 
So what does uh, the Asthma Foundation say about triggers? Which, which ones should we avoid and which ones uh, should we not avoid? I really need some guidelines to help me through this. But... So I, loved, I loved this. On the Asthma website, they've got this list of, as you said, avoidable, unavoidable, and they've decided that it needs to be put in writing. Do not avoid laughter. I kid you not. It's <laughs> at the top of this table. <laughs> um, so avoid, they've said, always avoid cigarette smoke. Do not avoid exercise or laughter. So important oh, take-home point some, here. Some of the greatest asthma minds in this country <laughs> came up with that guideline. Love it. All right. So I've given a bit of an alternative um, summary. So the ones to try to avoid are allergens and irritants as the broad heading, and under that is obviously the cigarette smoke, other airborne or environmental irritants. So pollens, I think is really interesting because after this thunderstorm asthma thing last year, everyone in Melbourne is saying that pollen causes asthma. It actually doesn't. It only causes hay fever. Pollen causes asthma only in thunderstorms. Because you need the thunderstorm to break up the pollen, is that one? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. It's it's very complex. I don't quite understand that degree of... Um, oh, you do understand. You just don't want to burn I, do, I don't want to burden everyone with right. all that. My meteorolo- meteorolo- I don't even know how to say the name, especially meteorological knowledge. <laughs> um, but yes, environmental irritants. Then moving on from allergens and irritants, there are drugs. So what, what drugs should you be looking out for or warning your asthmatic patients to avoid? So the big one is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs. Aspirin is a particularly big one. Mm. Beta blockers is another one, although that risk is a little bit overstated. As you can imagine, given uh, asthma is often an overactivation of the parasympathetic pathway, if you block the sympathetic pathway as well, then you have this increased uh, airway hyper-responsiveness. But or just to put that even simply, given that you treat asthma with something that agonizes the, the beta receptors, yeah, then, then antagonizing it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. That's probably a better way of thinking about it. But that risk is overstated. People often don't put patients on really important heart failure medications because they're worried about a little bit of asthma or COPD. So don't worry too much. If the patient really needs beta blockers, it's not going to be life-threatening generally to start them on that. But it's worth consulting a specialist, Absolutely, yeah. Particularly in asthma. COPD, not so much. Now, a couple of other drugs. Um, I've become increasingly aware of the number of my patients who are on weird and wonderful things. So it is important to check that they're not on bee products or echinacea. Right, gotcha. Dietary triggers as well. Different patients have different triggers. Cold drinks can be one. They don't just cause brain freeze. They can cause asthma attacks as well. Mm. So these are the triggers you can avoid. In terms of triggers that you need to manage but can't necessarily avoid, what can you um, add to that list of laughter and exercise? So just the common cold is a bad one. So people with really bad asthma can get really, really in a bad way when they've got a simple cold. Anything else to add there? <laughs> uh, so, so Another one is emotional changes. So this is the kid in the, you know, the TV show who is having an asthma attack when he gets really excited. But actually that... That is something that happens a lot. Any extreme emotions can precipitate an asthma attack, as can hormonal changes, as might occur in pregnancy or um, premenstrual stress. All right, so how do you make the diagnosis, Beck? So moving on. So if we look at clinical features first, we've already mentioned the symptoms of dyspnea, wheeze and cough. Is the cough dry or productive? I think of it as dry. Is that it, right? It varies. So gotcha. some, so a bit of a 
bit of a trick question, sorry. Um, so it can be dry a lot of the time. If it's productive, generally it's clear stuff or pale yellow. Um, the yellow is actually from eosinophils, which I think was a, an exam question when I was a medical student for some reason. It's a good little tidbit to know. And sometimes they get a prodrome, is that right? They do. And this is also something that I've only recently learned. People can get a sense of impending doom. Right. That, that seems uh, dramatic. It does seem pretty dramatic. Asthma can be dramatic. Yeah. Um, but they get itching under their chin as well. And I just... I, I would tell someone to get out of my emergency department if yeah. they ran in If they the came in they're like, my <laughs> chin is really itchy. <laughs> and I've got a sense of impending doom. Because something horrible is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and another one is intrascapular discomfort. Yeah, right. Which, uh, yeah. Another thing that patients often, just anecdotally, when I'm, when I'm looking after patients, they often talk about having a tight chest. Yeah, absolutely. That's and, a really good question. And sometimes they can uh, they can call it chest pain as well. And that was one of the issues with thunderstorm asthma. All these people were calling up and they were saying they had chest pain. Yeah, right. Because they didn't necessarily have a previous diagnosis of asthma. They didn't know what it I don't envy the like. triage nurse slash, uh, slash a triage paramedic nurse on that uh, night. Absolutely. horrible to try and sort out. My chin is really acutely itchy. <laughs> okay. Um, so, clinical features of asthma. We've said the symptoms. We've said the prodrome. Time, time course is really important in asthma as well. And in everything. Yeah. So it's episodic and there's usually an identifiable trigger. Someone's just gone for a run, it's cold weather, and they haven't been using their inhalers, they've just been given a beta blocker or aspirin. And on examination, pretty classic findings, you tend to hear a wheeze, which is high-pitched, generally expiratory, but actually you can get an inspiratory wheeze as well. And this is during... Uh, an episode of acute asthma, so an asthma attack. And in between, there's usually the lungs sound fine. Mm. What if the lungs sound fine while they're having an asthma attack? There's no wheeze. Or quiet, rather, like there's quiet. no wheeze. Yeah, you can't hear a wheeze, can't hear really anything. Yeah, they're the patients you actually need to be really worried about because they're not moving enough air through their lungs to make a wheeze. Mm. So beware the silent chest. Yeah, that's a good pearl. Good thing to take out of this. And... And look, when things are really bad, you know, you can see from the end of the bed when a patient has a, uh, you know, a life-threatening asthma attack, they're tachypneic, they're, um, they're often in what we call the tripod position, so they're sitting up, they can't lie flat, they're leaning on their extended arms, accessory muscle use is going on, um, and they, they just look very, very sick. All right, so then there's some really specific kind of clinical vignettes that are worth knowing about. So what do, you, what do you think about, Beck when someone has asthma and they have pale, swollen mucosa? So I think about allergic rhinitis. So this is really common in allergic asthma. So people who've got hay fever and asthma. All right. And you're a very thorough doctor and you actually pull out your speculum and check their nasal cavity and they've got some polyps there. What are you thinking then? Asthma plus nasal polyps. Yeah, so... This is something that often goes hand in hand with aspirin sensitivity. Um, it can also come with anosmia, so not being able to smell because of the polyps or chronic sinusitis. So aspirin sensitivity goes with nasal polyps and asthma. Gotcha. All right, so then you've got an asthma patient and they've got clubbed fingers. You're like, wow, this is really bad asthma. They've got clubbed fingers. They must be really sick. Is that right? No. So clubbing is something that alerts you that it's probably not asthma or at least not only asthma, and there might be another alternative diagnosis. So you've got to think about interstitial lung disease or cancer, 
uh, bronchiectasis, cystic fibrosis. Same goes for COPD. The classic teaching is you don't get clubbing with COPD. Mm. All right, I'm going to tell you a bit about Sarah. Sarah is a 45-year-old school teacher who you see in the respiratory outpatient clinic for a six-month history of episodic dyspnea, wheeze, and dry cough. Her past medical history is significant only for migraines, nothing else. No previous diagnosis of asthma. She's never had eczema. She doesn't get hay fever. She takes no regular medications and uses only simple analgesia and an inhaled nasal decongestant PRN. The episodes of shortness of breath, wheeze and cough tend to come on with exertion, exposure to cigarette smoke and migraines. So it sounds like asthma, right? But why is she getting asthma with migraines? There's only one explanation. She is functional and wasting your time. <laughs> but even though you think that, you decide to do an examination and you decide it's very important that you look inside her nose and you see some glistening grey mucoid masses in the nostrils. So mm. these are those polyps we talked about before. Right, it still doesn't make any sense. Why Why is she getting migraines and asthma, Beck? So she's got chronic rhinosinusitis, which mm. um, we deduce from the fact that she's using these nasal decongestants. Yeah. She's got nasal polyps. Yeah. Those things put together with asthma suggest aspirin-related ah. um, asthma. So she's probably using the aspirin with the migraines. Yeah, right. Bit of, uh, bit of detective work. That would be a satisfying one. All right, cool. So, so how would we diagnose her? Let's go on to investigations. So most medical students would know that the key diagnostic test with asthma is our spirometry. So we're looking for a reduced FEV1. So that's the amount of air that you can expel out of your lungs in one second. Mm, and the other thing you're looking for is a reduced FEA1 on FVC ratio. So lots of letters here. If, if they're new to you, it's probably a bit complicated to get them introduced in this way. But um, So the ratio of how much air comes out in that first second over how much air comes out in total. And if that's lower than the lower limit of normal, then that's an obstructive picture. And asthma is indeed an obstructive picture. How do you separate that from COPD though? So in asthma, usually it's normal. Um, the, a spirometry cold in a patient who's well and not currently having, exacerbate, having an exacerbation has normal spirometry most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So what you need to look for is evidence of variability, as we mentioned earlier. So that variability has to be quantified as greater than 200 mils and greater than a 12% change of the FEV1. Why would they, why would they suddenly capacity. become variable though? So they probably, if they've got a diagnosis of asthma, they have variable uh, lung function and that might be because of um, exacerbations. So you can induce these by giving them a muscarinic agonist, a challenge with something called methicoline. But, but what I'm getting at generally in spirometry, it's 200 mils or 12% after salbutamol. That's the typical test. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so you want to see if there's a bronchodilator response. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you do that. So you do this first lot of spirometry, write that all down and then give them a few puffs of salbutamol and see what happens. If there's no bronchodilator response, that doesn't rule out asthma though. Yeah. So if you're really clinically suspicious, what would you do next? So that's when you would do the methicoline challenge. Yeah. So what's methicoline? So it's a muscarinic agonist and... Basically, the way the challenge works is you work out exactly how much of this substance you need to give the person in order to drop their FEV1 more than 20%. Mm. 
Mm. So in normal people without asthma, there's not really any amount of methicholine that you can give that's going to drop it down that low. Yeah, so if you think back to the pathophysiology, the reason this muscarinic agonist works is because people with asthma have such reactive reactive airways or they have such remodeled airways there's a lot of smooth muscle that the methicholine can stimulate in their airways and interestingly there's another there's another kind of challenge test called the saline test which tests another branch of the pathophysiology and that just kind of induces more of an inflammatory response if you irritate the airways causes inflammation then causes airway constriction so this isn't really done but you can kind of differentiate what exactly is causing the asthma on a pathophysiological level based on whether they're more responsive to methicholine or to to saline. Mm, Okay. And in real life, what often is done is the the first lot of spirometry, if that's normal, sometimes GPs or respiratory physicians will just start the patient on a four-week trial of an inhaled corticosteroid and see what happens. And and that might demonstrate variability if they repeat the spirometry after four weeks and then find that there's a response of, as we said, greater than 200 mils and 12% on the FEV1. Yeah, they're really the two numbers you need to take away. It's mm. both. You need 200, 200 mils and 12%. Mm. So anyone studying for your basic physician's exam, this has been a previous question. Mm. Okay, so that's investigation. So as we said, spirometry, evidence of obstruction, the key numbers there are the FEV1 and the ratio of FEV1 on FVC, also known as the FER, and you want to see evidence of variability, which may be bronchodilator response, but maybe a bunch of other things too. All right, so moving on to differential. So you've, you're a little bit suspicious of asthma, but the spirometry came back negative and you're not super clinically convinced. What else uh, should you think about? So there's something called vocal cord dysfunction, which presents in a really similar way to asthma, but it's more of an upper airway thing. The um, spirometry is usually normal, but the clinical story is usually an abrupt onset and an offset of symptoms, a monophonic wheeze, generally in younger patients. So the best way to confirm this is either to do a laryngoscopy or actually get a flow volume loop. So um, it's it's sort of like spirometry, but uh, a full pulmonary function test. Yeah, yeah. What about ABPA or allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis? Yeah, so this is a really important differential as well. It's not one that I previously knew very much about at all. But basically this is, uh, again, something that sounds a lot like asthma on the story. But when you do a chest x-ray, you might see that there's um, infiltrates there. Might look a little... things like a mucus plugging. Yeah, it might look a little bit like some localised bronchiectasis. Mm, and they can get eosinophilia in their bloods. And if you test it, you might see that they've got positive skin testing to aspergillus antigens. They might have high IgE levels. And uh, these patients respond well to, um, to glucocorticoids. Yep. So it's usually pretty indistinguishable from asthma on the story, apart from the fact that they get these extreme coughing fits, which we think are due to uh, mucus plugs. Hmm. Another very obvious differential for asthma and the one that you're going to be thinking about most often in the emergency department um, for adults is COPD. So there is a grey area or a bit of an overlap on the Venn diagram here. Patients with asthma can also have COPD. But COPD is kind of like asthma, but generally it's not reversible. The caveat being that sometimes it can be reversible. Generally (laughs) though, 
Um, given that it's all there's a lot of grey area here, basically, if you see an older patient with a smoking history who seems like they have some kind of airway obstruction, it's probably COPD. I write a lot of COPD slash asthma on my admission past medical histories. Mm, a lot of patients don't know either. All right, so what are we moving on to next? So after okay. diagnosis comes treatment. That's it. So okay. The most important thing, I think, with uh, asthma treatment is to make the distingu- uh, make distinguish it from COPD treatment. It's not exactly the same. So in asthma, we rush to steroids as soon as possible, whereas in COPD, it's more of a kind of a late-stage drug. Mm. But take me through step-by-step step what, what the medications are. So just for people who don't have the privilege of seeing this brilliant diagram that I'm looking at from the Global Initiative for Asthma, we'll make sure we put a, a bit of a link dump together. Uh, but there's some great guidelines here. You would start everyone on a SABA, a short-acting beta agonist, PRN. So if they need it, a few puffs of salbutamol. And it's a That's re- step one. It's a really good indication of how well-controlled the asthma is as well. Always ask how often are you using your Ventolin or your mm. salbutamol. Really and it shouldn't important. Be, it shouldn't be really more than once or twice a week. Then the second step would be adding in a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Yeah, so as we said before, that's the first step. And then what do you do if they fail that, Beck? What's step three? So if, you f- if they fail that, then you might, in addition to that PRN SABA and in addition to the low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, you might add a LABA, a long-acting beta agonist. Yep, and then after that? Then you start to increase the dose of the inhaled corticosteroids is the fourth step. And then step five? Step five, you get a bit funky, you refer them on to someone who knows a little bit more about it, so... Add-on treatments, which might include things like tiotropium, might include things like oral corticosteroids, um, and and certainly might get into those uh, immunological agents that we spoke about earlier, so the monoclonal antibodies. I'm going to very quickly just run through some of these extra treatments. Um, and if we start first of all with leukotriene antagonists. Now these guys have a bit of a role early on. You can start them. Um, in patients whose asthma is controlled only on a low-dose ICS. Um, That's a corticosteroid. Corticosteroid, sorry. Um, so these are things like Montelukast. What, yeah. are they, what are they for? What are they best for? I don't know. I thought it was the best in kids. They're, so you give them to kids like lollies. Kids yeah. get them almost all the time. Yeah. They're particularly good, though, in exercise-induced bronchospasm and aspirin-sensitive asthma, gotcha. like our lady from before. Mast cell stabilizers are also used in kids, but there's not really any role in adults. And actually, I'm not too up to date with the kids thing either. I'm not sure if they're still using them for kids. Mm. Now we'll get very briefly into these monoclonal antibodies. We mentioned them before. Omalizumab has just been, um, I guess, registered on the PBS in Australia. This is an anti-IgE antibody. So the way that I remember it is A-E-I-O-U. So anti-E, anti-IgE. So there's the A and the E. Is... I for is. This is terrible. O for <laughs> omeliz and then U for umab. Anti-E is omelizumab. No? I don't like it. I feel like it's... um. Hopefully that resonates with somewhere, someone somewhere, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it is something that it, it's better it's if you see it written better down. Better visually. All right, I probably won't go through my other mnemonics here, but mepolizumab is an anti-interleukin-5, and that helps with the eosinophilia. Then in the wings is levrakizumab, not yet on the PBS in Australia, so don't worry too much about that. But um, it's something that happen, something that helps with um, a lot of upstream changes in 
the pathogenesis of asthma. All right, let's go back to November 2016, the great thunderstorm of Melbourne. Let's. All right. So this is just something I was thinking about of the night, thinking what it was like, what it must be like for those interns who've never seen asthma before coming to work in ED and suddenly they're looking after eight patients with asthma in one night. So let's imagine you're one of these interns and as you walk through the department, you hear the whooshing hum of nebulizers. You come out of the locker room and you're faced with a scene that makes you wonder if war has broken out. And then you learn how to treat asthma because you have no choice. That's all you're doing this night. So this is acute asthma. How do you treat it? All right, so the first thing you need to do is assess the severity. Is this, and you don't need to go through into this hypergranular severity stratification. You want to know, is this a life-threatening attack? And if it's not life-threatening, is it severe? Do the patients still look really sick but not like they're about to die? Or everyone else, is it mild or moderate? All right, so if they are life-threatening, so if they're kind of drowsy, they're exhausted, I can see their cyanos, their sats are no good. So that sounds pretty life-threatening to me. Mm. What do I do next? So the first thing is, if you're an intern, you need to get some help. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not an intern, you still need to get some help. So these are people who are probably need, needing to go to some kind of higher-level care, whether that's the intensive that care be, unit, respiratory care really. unit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so if we start off with the treatment of those people... You want to give them some some bridges to what will likely end up being intubation. So you give them continuous nebulized salbutamol, give them oxygen, titrate the oxygen to target SATs of 92 to 95%. And like we said, you get everything organized for the next step. All right. So really, I don't need to worry about life-threatening asthma too much other than identifying it. Mm. So what about severe? And what is that? What is severe asthma, acute asthma? So severe is... Uh, when patients are unable to speak in sentences, they look breathless from the end of the bed, they've got increased work of breathing, maybe some accessory muscle use, and their oxygen saturations are, say, 90 to 94%. So they're low, but not life-threateningly so. Yeah, right. Okay. As compared to mild, moderate asthma, where the patient could, say, walk into the department, they can speak whole sentences in one breath. Yeah. With both of these presentations... You give 12 puffs of salbutamol right then and there. Then you go and look up the guidelines if you can't remember what happens next. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good thing to remember. So that if, that, if you remember nothing else about the treatment of asthma, just remember that 12 puffs of uh, salbutamol with uh, 100 micrograms per actuation. And you want to use a spacer here as well. Yep. A nebulizer might be useful in a patient who can't coordinate the, the puffer and the spacer, but there's actually no evidence that it... it um, improves delivery and actually there's some evidence that it, it's not as good in medication delivery right. okay so then I've, I've done that I've given them the 12 puffs what do I do next so now we do something called burst therapy and what that involves is just doing the same thing again 12 puffs 12 puffs of salbutamol every 20 minutes for an hour if it doesn't seem to be working wonderfully you might add ipratropium which is in a in an eight puff 160 milligrams, oh, sorry, 160 micrograms per puff, eight puffs. How does uh, ipratropium work? So that's a muscarinic agonist. Antagonist. Antagonist, antagonist sorry. So don't give an agonist. Yeah, don't give them <laughs> methicolone. Give them the opposite of that, which is ipratropium bromide. So you can give ipratropium also every 20 minutes. That's easy to remember. You're giving two medications every 20 minutes. The other thing you want to do within this first hour, if the patient hasn't already done it at home themselves, is give them some steroids. So you want to give oral prednisolone, 37.5 to 50 milligrams, depending on what your hospital likes to do, right then and there. 
and then continue that for five to ten days. So I found this a bit surprising, but the guidelines say to do that for every severity, whether it's mild, moderate or severe or life-threatening, obviously. Mm. So a lot of patients use a pill-in-the-pocket technique where the GP has given them a prescription for prednisolone and said, if you have an asthma attack, take this tablet and get yourself to an emergency department. So a lot of them have actually already had it before you see them in the hospital. Yeah. All right, so we've done an hour of treatment. Then what do we do? We have a look at the patients. We assess them again. Have they gotten better? Has their dyspnea resolved? Are they speaking full sentences? Can they get up, walk to the toilet? Are they asking you for a sandwich? If so, they're all good. You need to keep an eye on them for another hour um, from the time that the dyspnea has resolved and then send them home with um, some good education and with a good plan in place, which we'll talk about in a moment. If they haven't, if they still are looking sick, if they've got unresolved symptoms and signs, they need to be admitted to hospital. A couple of other medications that can be useful in these patients and in, in those patients who are much sicker are intravenous magnesium sulfate. Important to know that this also drops the blood pressure. And intravenous salbutamol, that's a little bit more controversial. Another thing that there isn't evidence for that you might have heard about before is adrenaline. No evidence that that's useful. And then theophylline and aminophylline, you also might have heard of these. They're very risky medications and there's no good evidence of benefits. And we're not going to talk about them anymore because you shouldn't be prescribing them anymore. Um, okay. Let's go through some cases, hey? Just some quick acute asthma cases. Yeah, I'm conscious of the time. So just to let you all know that we're just going through these cases and that's the end. There's a bit of a summary. So five more minutes, hang in there. I'll tell you about or this first or guy. Or just turn it off. Or turn it off, yeah, no. Play it later. Go and get yourself some dinner and come never back. play it. We've got no power on it. We'll do whatever you want. <laughs> All right, patient number one. He doesn't have a name. What do you call him? Bertie. Bertie is a 45-year-old former AFL player who has a known past history of asthma and is usually on an inhaled corticosteroid. He is one of these patients in the cure thunderstorm asthma um, in the hospital. He looks all right. He drove himself to hospital when he started getting wheezy and coughing a couple of hours ago. It wasn't getting any better despite using his salbutamol a few times. On examination, he's speaking full sentences, saturations are 99% on room air, and his heart rate is 105. If you haven't seen this before, salbutamol causes tachycardia, so we're not so concerned about that. Yeah. How would you manage it, Davo? What is this, first I'm, of all? I'm not too worried about Bertie. I reckon he's kind of got mild to moderate asthma. He's still able to talk to me pretty well. So I just give him that burst therapy. So that's uh, 12 puffs of salbutamol every 20 minutes. And then maybe ipratropium if uh, that's not working so well. And then I'd also give him the prednisolone. So 37.5 to 50 milligrams stat. I'd try and do that within an hour. And then after an hour, I'd reassess him. I'd see if he can lie down flat with, without dyspnea. That's a really good question to ask. And then if he was pretty good, I'd just observe him for another hour and then send him home. That's it. Okay, so you uh, you say that you're going to send him home, but what do you need to do before you get him out of there? Yeah, so there's some really important stuff to do. The best thing you can do to ensure someone um, doesn't die of an asthma attack down the line is give them a, a written asthma management plan. This is what you do if you have another asthma attack. And then the other thing I'd want to do is really make sure they have a inhaled corticosteroid at home and they know how to use it. And this is hilarious. This is the kind of thing that I'm sure all of your lecturers have given their own stories before, but I've seen the most hilarious inhaler techniques. So <laughs> even if you're just bored, ask your patient to demonstrate how they use an inhaler and it can be gold. So I had a patient a couple of weeks ago who literally just sprayed it into the air 
in front of her and then sort of ducked her head forward to be in the in the kind of fumes and then sniffed it in through her nose <laughs> and with that one. Um, Maybe she's not using it as like deodorant or something. Yeah. All right, and then um, step three, so... Plan follow-up. Make yeah. sure that they know that they need to make an appointment with their GP. Yeah. And write their GP a letter and ask the GP to write a definitive management plan. So you're not going to give them um, a very detailed asthma management plan from there in the ED, but the GP will or should. So that's patient number one. Let's go to patient number two down the hallway. 33-year-old lady, no previous diagnosis of asthma, but does get hay fever, which is a really classic thunderstorm asthma presentation. She's already been in the emergency department for an hour and has already had burst therapy. So she's had three lots of salbutamol and ipratropium. When you're walking in to see her after an hour, she's looking really uncomfortable and breathless, speaking short sentences. She's tripoding, so she's sitting up in the bed, sort of leaning forward, propping herself up. And her saturations are 94% on room air. Respirate 28 and very audibly wheezy even from, um, from the end of the bed. She's in sinus tachycardia of 120. How severe is this? That sounds pretty damn severe to me. I don't like the sound of that tripod. Would you send her home? No, no I wouldn't. So she's still severe after an hour. So that's really worrying. So she's had steroids. She's had this like a lot of salbutamol now and uh, probably some ipratropium bromide as well. And it's not making much of a difference. This is when I really pick up the phone and uh, call the respiratory physician, probably call ICU, call the respiratory key. You know, this is this is outside of my expertise and, and this she's not looking good and I'm worried about her. Mm, so this is the kind of patient you might consider intravenous magnesium sulfate in as well. And also we've said burst therapy, we didn't really make it clear. You also continue these things. You continue the SABA, you continue the SAMA until they're getting better. Patient number three isn't in the corridor of uh, patients lined up in this thunderstorm asthma night. Patient number three is in recess because they look very, very sick and exhausted. A little bit blue around the lips, unable to speak. Respirate is 12, so that's not too bad, right? It's all right. (laughs) And saturations are 88% on room air and there's reduced air entry on auscultation. Your asthma is really bad if you're dropping your sats. That's such a worrying sign. It's not like COPD where 88% you're like, oh, all right, we'll just turn up the oxygen, they'll be right. Like they are... They're in real trouble if they're dropping their sats um, due to asthma. I think that's a really important point. We didn't really mention that with the last patient as well. Even mm. if they're if they're a thirty year old who's starting at 93, 94, that's a huge concern. Yeah, yeah. We get we get complacent with those kind of numbers because we see so many older people. But having sats of about ninety percent give gives you a PAO two around sixty with a with a normal um, PAO two being around hundred. So it's a real like kind of S shaped curve where you hold your sats pretty well for a long time when you're actually dropping your partial partial pressure of oxygen and then suddenly the gradient goes right down. Mm. So once you hit past 90, that's where you get worried. They've hit the, the sharp part of the S-curve and, and they could be in trouble. Yeah, so another thing that's making me very worried about this person is the quiet chest. We said earlier, beware the silent chest. Yeah. The decreasing respiratory rate, so 12 is normal normally. We're not into the gray area of the OBS chart, but... That's a worry too. That's a sign the patient's tiring. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is if you do an ABG on this guy and you find that his um, uh, carbon dioxide is normal, that's a worry too. Yeah, it should be low. It should right? be low because you're breathing so much off, but this is just a symptom of the reduced respiratory rate due to exhaustion. Yeah, exactly. So the management of this patient is to quickly yell for help. Dr. ABC, consider intubation, give ICU a heads up, 
And then a whole lot of things are going to happen at the same time while somebody's getting the advanced life support equipment ready because this patient is likely peri-arrest. Yeah, sounds like they're about to have a heart attack. Yeah. Not so a heart attack, as in their heart's about to stop. <laughs> a cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're going to be giving them continuous NEBs of salbutamol and oxygen, aiming saturations above 92%. You give them the IV mag sulfate, you give them the IV salbutamol in different lines, probably more of a nursing thing, but they do need two different lines for that. And uh, you'll be quickly handballing this over to someone who knows a lot more than you and who's hopefully not getting their information from a podcast. <laughs> so that's it. Um, thanks for sticking with us through this marathon of 45 minutes. We've got some take-home points for anyone who's endured it for this long. Do you want to tell us what they are? Yeah, sure. Dad was so, already falling asleep. <laughs> asthma is a reversible obstructive lung disease, uh, usually diagnosed in childhood. I'm going to add in a usually reversible obstructive lung disease. Yeah. Risk factors, atopy, so eczema and hay fever. So that's a good question to ask on, on history, yep. And symptoms are wheeze, cough, shortness of breath, usually triggered by exercise, environmental irritants, drugs or viruses. What are you going to see on spirometry? You're going to see a low FEV1 and a low FER, which is comprised of the FEV1 divided by the FVC. But not necessarily that low, and it's not part of the diagnostic criteria for asthma. So what is on, on spirometry? So you want to see a 12% and 200 mil FEV1 variability, which could be from a bronchodilator response. Yeah. How do you, how do you manage these patients chronically? So everyone needs a salbutamol or some kind of short-acting beta agonist uh, PRN, so for whenever they need it. And that's a good way to test uh, how well their asthma is being controlled. Then the next uh, drug you add on is an inhaled corticosteroid. And then the next drug is a long-acting beta agonist like salmeterol. And then you just increase the dose. And then, then you're probably at your wit's end and you send them off to a respiratory position for some, some fancy monoclonal antibodies or, or maybe a long-acting muscarinic uh, antagonist. Mm, okay, so acute management. I think we've really hammered this in. So... Everyone gets birth therapy of salbutamol every 20 minutes for an hour and oral prednisolone for 5 to 10 days. Some people get a short-acting muscarinic antagonist as well. Some people get IV magnesium sulfate. The people that you won't be managing might get more extreme things. Mm. Beware the quiet chest. Beware thunderstorms. That is all. Good job, Beck. Thank you very much. Thank you.